0: You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. You could turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 14. This is actually the passage we started off this uh, month with. If you know anything about Sunday school, you might know that we do topics by month, and so earlier this month we started off reading 2 Timothy 3. 14 through 16, which includes this very famous verse, which is 2 Timothy 3.16, which we'll get to in a second. But I actually turn there. I'll give you another minute to uh, find it in your own Bibles, or if you use an app, that is perfectly fine too. But I want you, want to get you into the habit of actually turning into your own texts, whether it is a book form or an app form. Um, and so turn there. 2 Timothy 3, uh, verse 14. This is Paul's letter to Timothy. And he says, But as for you, so he's talking about Timothy, and Timothy grew up uh, knowing the scriptures, because here's what it says Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Think about that. From a, as the time Timothy was a child, he grew up knowing the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, and, and, and learning it and memorizing it. And so how cool is it when some of us have, have been Christians our whole life and have been studying the Scriptures our whole life? That's a great thing. So um, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through the faith in Jesus Christ. And then this verse, the, the famous verse, all Scripture is... God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray this morning. God, we do thank you for Scripture and the books that we have in the Bible. God, we thank you that we could read them and reread them and know what is true by um, studying your words and and the stories about you on this earth as Jesus and the stories about you and your faithfulness for for, uh, all of time. So God, we praise your holy name, we worship you, praise you, and everybody screamed amen. So this month, we are talking about the Apocrypha, and we've come a long ways. If you've been around for this month, or, or have been podcasting, we, we podcast our Sunday School Talks, you know that we have come a long way. We, we started off this month kind of having to... Um, just begin it with an introduction of what the Apocrypha is, because I imagine some of you came in here thinking, oh, the Apocrypha, aren't those those satanic books, or aren't those those witchcraft books, or aren't those the books that, you know, Satan inspired or something? You just have these ideas and thoughts about, ooh, it's, it's secret, it's hidden, it's the Apocrypha, it must be evil. And we talked about how, well, no, those books aren't evil, they're, they're books that uh, have been left out of the Bible or have been taken out of the Bible, because in some ways there was questions about their authenticity. There was questions about their sacredness. And so the church, the early church and the church through time, picked books that, that were in fact inspired and passed them on and copied them. And we talked about the formation of the canon. And so this month, we talked a lot more, I think, maybe going into this month um, than you would have thought. We talked a lot more about the actual books that are in the Bible, the 66 books, the 39 Old Testament, the 27 New Testament books. We talked a lot about um, how we got these books and compared them with the books that have been left out. We call those books the apocryphal books in some way. Um, and so why did we do that? Why did we talk more about the Bible than the apocrypha on a month called the apocrypha? And it comes down to one of the first meetings we had um, at my house. The the Mill Sunday School leadership team got together and we were talking through the month and what we we're going to talk about. And my friend Chris said, hey, you should mention the analogy that uh, counterfeit money, uh, if you want to know what counterfeit money is compared to uh, the, the real money, then what you do as a banker, as a teller, you spend more time just with the real thing. You, do, you don't study the, the the fake things. You study the real things and you get really familiar with them. And over time, you will just know when you see something that is... Counterfeit when it's when it's not right because there's so many ways to counterfeit bills. If you, I was I was for this analogy, I was looking on the internet uh, for how to counterfeit money. <laughs> so maybe the FBI will show up at my house. I don't know. Um, but it only took ten minutes to know that even those. You know when you you have like a big bill. Like I, I always pay with big bills, like hundreds and fifty. That's all I care. You know because I'm rich. Um, I'm kidding by the way. You're just, anyways. Um, But if you ever pay with a big bill, they have those little markers and they like mark it and they hold it up. And there's even ways to get around that. I I mean, a 10 minute search on YouTube or uh, or Google will tell you this. So it's not like I'm giving secrets of the federal government out, but you just take a, like a $5 bill and you bleach it with bleach or you put it in brake cleaner and it, all the, all the ink comes off and you put it through a printer and you print, instead of a five, you print a hundred dollar bill on it. And then those pins will, will work just fine because it's the actual paper. And so the, the ways of counterfeiting bills, um, and it's, I found a stat that said that 1% of all bills are out there are counterfeit bills. I was like, that was kind of surprised. I thought that number would be much lower. Um, but anyways, um, the, the, the fact that you can counterfeit bills, the fact that you can fool someone fairly easy makes tellers and bankers—they uh, have to be aware of that, and they have to be aware that uh, a piece of paper with a with $100 print on it is not a $100 bill if it hasn't been printed by the U.S. Treasury. So anyways— going back to why I mentioned this is that bankers and tellers, they will study the real thing and they will go, they, they spend lots and lots of time uh, counting and, and, and touching and, and, and flipping through the real bills so that when a fake is introduced, they will know it right away. They will feel the difference. They will see that the, just the subtle differences. And it's much more of an art form than, than maybe a, a mathematical science formula. So anyways, um, that is why we talked more this month about how we did Get the canon, the books that are in the context of Scripture, than some of the books that are apocryphal. However, today, uh, for your treat, we're going to talk about a couple different books. If you noticed on our skillets, we're going to talk about the Didache, the book of Enoch, um, and the book of Tobit today. And so um, that's hopefully a treat for you to actually get into some of these books that are apocryphal books and maybe what we can learn from them. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So, If you're new to the Mill Sunday School, welcome. There's uh, cards on your table. I think they look something like this. And uh, you could take one of them, fill it out, bring it to the nice people in the back um, as you leave that that curtain back there. And they will give you a CD. It's got a worship song on it, a welcome and a welcome sermon on it. Um, Tells you about what the Mill is, its history, how to get connected around here. And uh, it it tells you more about the Mill on a Friday night, which is our main ministry. Uh, The Mill Sunday School is more of like the Sunday school of the mill in case you were wondering where we got that name from so um yeah And by way of other announcements, uh, this is the last Sunday of this month, uh, the Apocrypha. Next month, and so next Sunday, we will start a new series. And if you're interested in what that is, you can look at the little bookmarks that are on your table, and you will see that we are talking about, uh, we've called it the Wisdom of the Elders. And so we're going to have the actual uh, New Life Church elders, some of them come and speak for, uh, for the four weeks that are in. August. So you don't want to miss that. Meet them, learn from them, hear what they have, the directions for New Life and uh, some of their stories and why they were picked as an elder of New Life Church. And so that'll be pretty cool next month. And oh, today at 11 o'clock in here uh, will be the, there's a Chinese church event in here. And so if you would please... Um, it, when, when we close, bring all your like the, all the stuff that's on the tables, like the Bibles and pamphlets and pins and whatever, to the back and just set them on one of the back tables so that our leadership team can clean them up. And if you're in the front, I think they're going to ask you to move the tables to the sides and set up some rows up here. But if you're in the back, you lucked out. Not only do you get to sit in the back, you don't have to do anything when you leave. Because I think they're going to keep the tables back there because they're having like a Chinese food um, Uh, luncheon or something, which really makes me want to be like part of the Chinese church, at least for today. Um, (laughs) Anyways, uh, so uh, let's review very quickly Um, this month. And if you've been here, this should be a very quick review. And if you haven't been here, uh, hopefully you'll just uh, get a taste of what we talked about uh, this whole month, these last four Sundays. But we've been talking about uh, this word canon. And canon, it does not mean like the shooting thing that shoots cannonballs, but rather uh, it's a Latin word for rule. Then the standard, the the measuring stick, Um, what we hold um, as the canon of Scripture is the 66 books of our Bible, and uh, we would say that they are the standard. They have been canonized. The, the canon is closed. We uh, decided that these books and not other books are holy and sacred inspired. And there may be other books that we can learn from. But let's print them somewhere else. Let's take apocryphal books and let's not burn them. Let's not throw them out. But let's not bind them with uh, the the books that we know for sure are sacred and holy. Because we talked about some terms. We talked about proto-canonical. That's a big, fancy word. You should learn that word just to impress people. Guys, girls love big words. So just, you know, to impress them. Use the word proto-canonical on your first date. She'll love it. Guaranteed. Um, Trust me, I'm married. Know what I'm talking about. Um, Anyway... Uh, protocanonical means scripture. It's primary. So protocanonical is just another word for canonical. It's, it's what we all as Christians worldwide hold as scripture. And then there's some books that we would label as deuterocanonical. And the, the Catholic Church would, would label the Apocrypha as deuterocanonical. They, if you want to impress a Catholic person, you shouldn't refer to the books that have, that we have taken out of the Old Testament as Apocrypha you should refer to it as deuterocanonical because if a Catholic knows what they're talking about, that's what they would refer to it as. Uh, The seven books that the Catholic Church has that we do not have, they're all Old Testament books, by the way, are deuterocanonical and they're secondary to Scripture. And we as Protestants, um, thinking and making decisions as a church, we're like, hey, why are we printing deutero, secondary to the canon books, into the Bible? And so roughly around the time of Martin Luther... um, people got the idea of, let, let's take those seven books and then uh, make a section of Scripture and, and call it Apocrypha. And, and so it's Old Testament, Apocrypha, New Testament. And then later in time, um, as printers would, would print Bibles, um, the Apocrypha was removed altogether. And this this greater idea of this like, well, these are deuterocanonical. These are secondary to Scripture. Let's print them somewhere else. Let's not print them with the sacredness of Scripture. Um, let's print them somewhere else. Let's rather be safe than sorry. The the ancient saying um, is: Let's not mix gall and honey. Let's not mix like like vinegar bitter with honey. Let's keep the honey here and the vinegar here, and let's not mix them. Is this this bigger idea that we have in the early church of that we even have early church fathers saying things like, yeah, let's not mix these books and the books that we know to be true. Let's not mix honey and gall. Um, And then we have books that we could refer to as non-canonical, never thought to be scripture. However, Maybe they have a name in them that is a, like a biblical character's name, like the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas. No one thinks these books should be part of the canon, and so they're just non-canonical books that have biblical characters in their title. And so let's keep them around. Let's learn from them. Let's let's those specifically two books are Gnostic gospels, and we talked a little bit about that last time and who the Gnostic were, Gnostic uh, people were, and what they believed. But um, so we have two words. And I'm sure you can clearly see the difference between these two words. One has a big A, one has a little A. So Apocrypha big A would be a proper noun referring to the actual seven books that the Catholics have that we do not have. And then the little a apocrypha is just a general list of, oh, anything that uh, could in any sense be thought of as either a part of the Jewish uh, uh, writings or a part of the early Christian writings, someone could call as this general term little a apocrypha. And so there would be Old Testament and New Testament little a apocryphal books. But the big A apocryphal books are these books right here, this list, Tobit, Judith, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, Sirach, and Baruch. And these seven books are the seven books that are in the Catholic Bible, but are not in our Bible. And they, uh, we, we honestly have to say as Protestants that we took them out. It would be wrong to say, oh, the Catholics added them. Well, no, our history as Protestants is that we protested and we reformed and we broke off of the Catholic Church. So really, when we broke off, we decided let's take them out. And the main, main reason that I think makes a lot of sense to us, is that the Jew, we got these books, they're all Old Testament books. Um, we got the canon of the Old Testament scriptures from the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, um, even today, no one holds these seven books, a Jewish person. They, they do not hold these books as canon. They're, they are not in a Jewish Old Testament, uh, the Hebraic uh, scriptures. And so it's almost like, well, if we got... what what is sacred from them and they don't think it's sacred, well then there's some doubt about that, some very serious doubt about if, if they're sacred and holy like the rest of the other books. And so we as Protestants have taken them out and said, if there's any doubt, let's not print them with the rest of scripture. Let's take them out. It's better to be safe than to be sorry. And so it's these seven books. And by the way, there's also an addition to Daniel, an addition to Esther that would make it on this list, but they would just be additions to the books that we already have. So that's the Apocrypha. So hopefully the mystery, maybe if you came into this month thinking, oh, what is the Apocrypha? You know, is it satanic? Where did it come from? Well, hopefully we've taken a lot of that mystery away and just said, well, these are seven books. And by the way, Tobit is starred because we're going to talk about that one specifically today. But these are books that were a part of the Jewish ancient writings they did not consider them to be sacred as as they have formed their canon, and so we, as Protestants, have taken them out of the canon. Better be safe than sorry so that 's the big a Apocrypha little a Apocrypha, just this general list of any type of book that could be considered oh a lost book of the Bible or a forgotten book of the Bible and there 's so many i mean you could you, any ancient Christian or semi Christian writing could fall into the the category of little a apocrypha. It really does, it's kind of this word that's lost its bite in a sense because it's so broad and and doesn't really have a a straight meaning. It's just a general list of books that did not make it into the context of scripture. So, are you ready to look at one? All right, we will, on behalf of Jordan Burton. Um, Let's look at the Didache. And I printed out the Didache for you. It's on your table. Um, This is the first book we will look at. Uh, And we'll spend just a little bit of time here. Uh, The word Didache means the teaching or the training. And uh, we think it comes from uh, the early church church potentially around 100s A.D. However, it could have been written a little before that, could have been written a little after that. But uh, it is a non-canonical book. No one, there's not a church that I'm aware of anywhere, no denomination, no sect of Christianity anywhere, thinks that the Didache, this book, uh, should be in to the context of Scripture. Of course, if it did, it would be a New Testament, not an Old Testament book. But no one anywhere, as far as denominations and groups and sects of Christianity, no one thinks that this book should be in their Scripture. No one uses it alongside of the New Testament uh, as a holy, sacred book. And... um, so it's probably written somewhere in the 100s. It's it's, it's uh, we're going to look at it in just a second and I'm going to give you uh sections to read. Um but it, it is basically it's, if you look at it really quickly, you you see that uh it has a lot of like New Testament quotes. Like look at 116. Blessed is he that giveth according to the commandment for he is guiltless. Woe to them that they receive just very like uh New Testament Jesus kind of sayings. Um uh, let's see. Uh Abstain from fleshly and bodily lust uh uh, God made thee, um, just things that you would think that, oh, these, these were early Christian sayings. These are sayings that were, have been directly copied from some of the gospels, like the words of Jesus himself. And then it goes on to talk about uh, some rules and some ideas for people to follow uh, living in the early church. So it is just human nature to kind of want to like organize and structure our faith. And so in the early church, we have this writing that that Teachers and people were like, "Well, how do we baptize someone? Well, th- there's there's some some words about how to baptize someone in the Didache. Uh, how, how should we do communion? Well, there's there's some some ideas on how you should." do communion, on how to fast. There's ideas on how to, how to test to see if there's a false prophet, uh, how to treat someone who visits you um, like a traveler. There's just these things that were written down, and it's a pretty cool, I would say very cool, window into the early church. Um, and so this specific document, this is just kind of a rabbit trail, but was lost for many years. In fact, Eusebius, uh, an early church father, writing about the year 300s, said that, oh, there was this teachings of the apostles that we used to have, and we no longer have it. It's been lost. And then, lo and behold... In 1873, some dude is going through manuscripts and studying uh, in Constantinople and doing the work of archaeology. And he finds, uh, this actually is a picture of the piece that he found. Um, he found the Didache, this teaching, this training from the, from the early church. And so weird that it was lost for so many years, but so awesome that we have it and that, that it was found um, that we can have this awesome little window into what the early church was thinking about. So, once again, big picture. This is not scripture. This is a pretty awesome window into looking at what the early church thought. And so we're going to look at some of the things they said. And you might disagree with like, wow, I, I, I wouldn't do it that way. Or man, that seems like a pretty strict rule. We in the church later have, have loosened up on that rule. And maybe we're more strict on some other things. But... Um, Yeah, so let's see what they have to say. So this, once again, it's the dedicates, the teachings, the training of the apostles. And by the way, it's probably not the original 12 apostles. It's the teachings of those people that were apostles probably after the the first 12, like Paul mentions the other apostles. Uh, And so it's probably written around 100 AD. And so I have a discussion question for you. I want you to actually look at it, uh, get into groups uh, at your tables. Maybe it's all stapled together, but if you want, you could like rip it apart and and hand it out to to people. And I want you to, as a group, um, maybe pick one of the topics. And so I've listed the topics that uh, the, the Didache mentions and, and the references. Uh, abortion, how to baptize, how to fast, how to pray, communion, testing a false pro- prophet, or how to treat travelers. And so pick one as a group and look at it, see what they have to say, talk about it. If you get done with that, then pick another one and see what the Didache has. Um, ready, get set, Go! Yeah, let's go through some of these. Um, raise your hand if you were just found it interesting in what the early church thought and did. It's like this is different than how we would do it. Yeah, um, the first one is quite interesting, though abortion, but we think it's uh, like a controversy today, and it's like, oh, that's, that's a really big deal to us as American Christians living in 2012. But it obviously was somewhat of an issue back in the 100s AD, because 2.2 uh, of the Didache says, thou shall not murder a child by abortion, nor killing them when born. So I imagine this, this Gentile, this pagan culture, had these ideas of if the child had defects, or if the child uh, wasn't the sex, like boy or girl, that you wanted, then there was probably these groups of people that would kill them. And so the the teaching says, don't do that. Um, How to baptize? Did anyone look at that one? How many groups look at how to baptize? Cool. Um, Did you think it was interesting that they said, it's better to do it in living water, meaning like a river, but if you don't have a a running water, then it's better to baptize in cold than in warm water. Isn't that an interesting, like the early church for some reason was like, let's baptize them in cold instead of warm water. But has anyone ever been baptized here at New Life Church? Was the water cold or warm? It was really warm, like surprising, like, whoa, this is like hot tub warm. Sweet. Um, so anyway, so for us, at New, like if, it, and this, we just have to take this for what it is. Like if we think about like, oh, the early church had it all together. The early church is this golden age of church. The early church did nothing wrong well, hello, like read your New Testament. Paul slams the early church. You foolish Galatians, you, uh, the first Corinthians, like why are the divisions among you? So by the way, the early church did not all have it right. And so reading this is, we have to take it for what it is. It's, it's the early church's opinions on some pretty specific things, whereas we are entitled to our opinions. So at New Life, we're perfectly okay with disagreeing with this and saying, oh, the Didache says better in cold than in warm. But at New Life, we're like, well, why make people suffer? Especially like, in the winter like why baptize them in cold water when the warm water you're just another you know spigot why not turn on the warm instead of punishing people making it harder for them so anyways uh i thought this one was funny did anybody look at the days of fasting which days you're supposed to fast on i found that interesting um it says uh do not fast like the hypocrites for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week which would be sunday was probably the first day of the week sabbath would be the last saturday would be the last day so the second and fifth so it'd be monday and thursday is that right so so don't fast on those days like the hypocrites, but fast on the fourth and the sixth day. It's like, really? Like that's when the hypocrites were fast? Like that doesn't have any context to me. And and what? I don't know. Whatever. Um, how to pray? Did anyone look at how to pray? They said, you know, pray the basically it's pray the Lord's Prayer and pray it three times a day. Which is just very different than like if someone up, came up to me and said, Joe, how should I pray? Uh, I don't think I would say, well, say the Lord's Prayer three times a day. I would say, well, um, you know, pray through the scriptures. You know, maybe uh, pray the Lord's Prayer. That's great. But maybe come to the the World Prayer Center. uh, Come to the Furnace Prayer Meeting. See how they pray. Uh, It's just maybe different. A different style is all we're looking at here. Communion. um, And then it talks about, uh, did anyone else think it was interesting that it says, uh, verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 10 says, Do not anyone... Let anyone eat or drink of the Eucharist Thanksgiving, but they that have been baptized into the Lord's name. So for some reason, the early church was really into, until you've been baptized, you cannot have communion. Which we at New Life, we often say, oh, we, we practice open communion, which means uh, anyone that, believe, if you believe in Jesus, we'll let you decide, then please partake with us and, and eat this Eucharist meal. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. It's different than how we would do it. Uh, wh- which one's next? Uh, how to pray, how to communion, testing of the false prophet. Anyone look at this one? I thought that one was fascinating because it's, it's the main thing was, listen to what they say, test it. um, But as soon as they ask for money, you will know that they are a false prophet. So it's like someone comes in and is like, hey, I got some words to the Lord. And you're like, oh, great. Thanks, man. And then as soon as they're like, hey, man, can I have five bucks for lunch? You're like, nope, you must be a false prophet. Because if you're, (laughs) real prophets don't ask for money. And so obviously in this time, Uh, the the time of the Didache, as well as today. Like there are Christians and Christian leaders who are corrupted and greedy and who will ask for money. I think like just randomly, what if we thought, what if we use the Didache for how to test a false prophet and we watched some of our TV evangelist preachers? Yikes. Like listen to them. As soon as they ask for money, Flip the channel. They are false prophets. I don't know. It's just an idea I had. Uh, it's not my idea. It comes from the Didache, so take it for what it is. Anyways, uh, last one, how to treat travelers. I just thought this was interesting. Pretty much, take them in your home, but it said something like, um, like l- only let them stay like three days. I can't find it. Uh, so it said somewhere, only let them stay three days. Like the, and so the saying is still true that, uh, that uh, friends staying at your house as well as fish start to stink after three days. Have you heard that before? Just me? Okay. So, anyways, because um, maybe travelers knew and were, were like, oh, just show up into a town, find the Christians. The Christians will take care of you. You could take advantage of the Christians, but, but this is kind of teaching well, take care of them. But only for three days. And then make them find a job. Make them find a living for themselves. Um, don't be taken advantage of by people knowing of your goodwill and, and life as a Christian. So that is the Didache. Are you ready to hear about another book? So we're totally changing gears now. And we're going to go to an Old Testament deuterocanonical book called the Book of Enoch. Does that sound exciting? Okay, Aaron Higgins, come on up here. This talk, I asked Aaron Higgins to uh, research and give us a talk on the book of Enoch. When Aaron's a Sunday school leader, and while we were talking, um, he he obviously knew a lot more about the book of Enoch than I did. So I was like, "Well, why don't you just prepare a presentation and tell us about the book of Enoch?" So, ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Higgins.
1: Oh, okay, a quick show of hands here. Who has read the book of Enoch? Wow. Hey, that, that's, that's impressive. That's more than I thought there would be. Uh, so those of you who don't know who Enoch is, uh, you may not have uh, read Genesis. Uh, so who is Enoch? He appears in the Genesis genealogy, uh, as it's referred to as. In Genesis five eighteen through 24, we find a, uh, a quick reference to a character named Enoch. Uh, uh, more or less in summary, he's the uh, great to the sixth power grandson of Adam, so he's seventh generation human, and uh, the great-grandfather to Noah. Uh, the brief reference talks about uh, that he, Enoch, walked with God and was no more. Uh, essentially, God took him away. Uh, Enoch never died Uh, He apparently was an extremely faithful man. Uh, This awesome painting uh, shows Enoch floating on some clouds with people. Not exactly sure what's going on there. Uh, but, But Enoch apparently was such a holy man that God didn't want him to die. Well, that left a lot of unanswered questions. Such a brief reference to Enoch either inspired people to get creative, or perhaps there really was a book. If you have read Enoch, you've most likely read just First Enoch. Uh, the books of Enoch are actually comprised of three books, Enoch's 1, 2, and 3, uh, the oldest being First Enoch. Uh, the oldest fragment that we have was written around 300 B.C. Uh, the claims within it uh, make it appear to be older. Uh, There are actually Old Testament books that are older that seem to reference Enoch in passing, more or less paraphrasing what's written or basing some of their ideas off of Enoch. Uh, Second Enoch and Third Enoch are both uh, definitely not any sort of debate about them uh, being considered to be any sort of canon or uh, uh, canonical. Uh, first Enoch, though, is it's an interesting animal. It's actually split into uh, five distinct sub-books. Uh, there's the Book of Watchers, which is the longest section, the Book of Parables of Enoch, also called the Similitudes of Enoch, the Astronomical Book, also called the Book of Luminaries, the Book of Dream Visions, or the, just the Book of Dreams, and the Epistle of Enoch. So... What about Enoch? Uh, I think any time you talk about extra-biblical or extra-canonical books, Enoch always seems to emerge. Uh, And the reason for that is actually in the New Testament, there's two uh, direct references to Enoch. Uh, First is in Jude uh, 14 through 15. It says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone, and to convict all of them of their ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That comes from Enoch nine, And then in Hebrews it says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life, so that he does, did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For be, before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Uh, and First Peter even paraphrases Enoch. Uh, if you uh, look up uh, First Peter three nineteen through twenty and compare it to Enoch uh, twenty one six, you'll see that it's uh, more or less uh, like what most college kids do with uh, Wikipedia entries. Come on, it was a joke. Uh, and, and then and then the, the other support is the early church fathers actually reference it a lot. Uh, Justin Martyr, I'm sure you've heard of him, uh, Clement of Alexandria, uh, and Origen, uh, very heavy hitters in the early church, uh, make references to Enoch. Now, the interesting part is, and I won't, I won't go into great detail on what their references are, it's mostly in the Book of Watchers, and that's really the... the part that most people debate most about. It is the oldest part. Um, We believe it is older. We just don't have any source material for it. And when the early church fathers like Tertullian, when he quotes it, he only quotes from Book of Watchers. He doesn't quote from any of the other subsections. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is kind of the biggest piece. The Aseans felt that it was important to keep around, and so they included it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Unfortunately, this is all we have. If you're familiar with Enoch, it's a pretty long book. It's 108 chapters, if I recall. Um, <clears throat> this isn't even a full chapter. It's not even full verses, it's just a small fragment. That's all we have. That's the oldest piece. It's dated to around 300 BC, which leads us to the problems with Enoch. The earliest fragment we have is 300 BC. Uh, if you recall, that was uh, not a time that scriptures were being written. Uh, it's also called the uh, the period of silence. Uh, it's the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, authorships are in question. There are completely different styles, all five sub-books. Uh, one's more poetic. Uh, one's more a story. So there's, there's issues there. Um, the only complete copies we have is actually written in Ethiopian or, or Gez, uh, which is an ancient Ethiopian language that only their their church, their priests speak, and there 's also some severe contradictions, um, for example, uh, in the Book of Enoch lists the various roles of the archangels, one of them named Fanuel, has the job of giving salvation. well, not so much. Another angel named Penume gives mankind the secrets of wisdom which corrupts mankind. Uh, we know that mankind was actually corrupted by the serpent in the garden. Uh, at least that's what uh, we believe. Uh, so there's, there's some contradictions. Uh, what I found interesting, though, is that one of, the, um, one of the sub-books has a list of rules that are sins, and one of them is if you're writing It's a sin if it's not spiritual writing. So, that text message is a sin. Okay, so the first and oldest book is the Book of Watchers. This one is actually an entertaining read. Uh, It goes into the rebellion of the angels. um, And believe it or not, we base a lot of our theology... Uh, of the rebellion of Satan off of this section of uh, Enoch. Uh, There are, throughout Scripture, references to the rebellion, uh, one-third of all the angels, all that. But in no place in Scripture outside of Enoch is it all put down into one story. In Enoch, it's all put together in one easy-to-read location. You find out that Lucifer became uh, very jealous of God's power and authority, and that he wanted all the glory for himself. He gathered up one-third of all the angels, and they rebelled. But another part, too, is the Watchers. If you recall in Genesis, there's a reference to some angels that fall in love with women, and they father children known as the Nephilim. Well, those angels are specifically called the Watchers, where this sub-book gets its name from. Um, They are led by an angel named Zeiel, who led the watchers, and then he's later captured and thrown into Angel Prison by Raphael. Not the Ninja Troll. It then flows to the Book of Parables. Uh, these breaks are very distinct, and most translations will actually, like like the NIV, will have a little chapter uh, header. Uh, these are labeled as such in most translations. Uh, This is early 1st century. It's one of the actual later additions uh, to Enoch. Uh, They believe it was actually written by early Christians hoping to uh, validate uh, prophecies in regards to Jesus. Uh, So there's a lot of references to uh, Son of Man, amongst other names, uh, Emmanuel, uh, etc. Topics. What happened to the Watchers? Uh, It goes into great detail about that talks about personal salvation uh, and then judgment and different, different eschatology uh, and times uh, stories. Uh, the astronomical book is interesting. It's the second oldest section, and uh, it actually contains detailed uh, models of our solar system. It's sun-centric models, which is unique for its time, uh, even then. Uh, we are about two thousand years, give or take, uh, before Galileo. Uh, so this this is very very interesting to to see that uh, uh, this was written down then. Uh, the problem with the uh, with the book is that it's a different calendar system, more similar to ours than it is for the Jews. And so it wasn't widely adopted uh, by the priests because it was hard to keep track of the feast days. The Book of Dream Visions, uh, it is a collection of kind of random thoughts. Uh, What's most interesting about it is that it does cover events that uh, when these words were written down, which was 163 B.C. to 142 B.C., Um, so about 150 years before Christ. uh, It does talk about the Messiah, does talk about the destruction of the temple. It goes into, uh, talks about the formation of the early church, etc., New Jerusalem. It's kind of interesting on the amount of detail that's in these dreams and visions. Um, Do I think Enoch had them? Probably not, but someone did. They wrote them down. And then finally, the fifth sub-book is the Epistle of Enoch, um, this was perhaps, as you can see the date range there they 're not entirely sure uh some some scholars say that it was written down and then added to uh to more closely mirror the uh, epistle of jesus the 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 scripture being written there uh more references to the Son of Man are made at this time uh, in it Enoch supposedly encourages his progeny to become more or less Christians, to follow the Son of Man, uh, which just makes it totally suspect because there wasn't that kind of uh, discussion happening during that era. Uh, What's interesting though is that Enoch disappears and then Noah's born shortly thereafter. The text from that is almost directly lifted from the book of Noah, which is a another book that um, has authorship questions and, and severe issues. So ultimately that, that leads to this question, what do we do with the book of Enoch, and specifically Enoch 1? Uh, Enoch 2 and 3 again, out of the question, we know that they're not scriptural at all. Obviously the early church founders uh, fathers uh, found value in it, they quoted it. They taught from it, um, but it does show signs of being altered, being written by people who claim that they were Enoch. They weren't, you know. So there's there's definitely issues with Enoch. So we can't take it for scripture. However, as Joe has said before, we don't necessarily want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. There's a lot to be gained from it. There's a lot of wisdom and insight to be gained from it. It's not secret knowledge. It's, it's not something special that, that you'll have uh, over any other Christian, or, and it shouldn't alter your theology or your salvation. Uh, but it's worthwhile having an insight into what the thinking was of the time leading up to Christ. Uh, even if this book really was just written in 300 BC and, and not truly written by Enoch or, or his contemporaries, there, there's some information and knowledge to be gained. Uh, our church traditions about the rebellion of Satan come from this book, and the details filled in come from this book. So there's value there. Um, so. Uh, take Take what you read with it with a grain of salt uh, again it 's not scripture uh, but there but there 's wonderful insight that can be gleaned so that's that 's Enoch. We could actually spend weeks on it, but uh, there 's ten minutes in enoch that's
0: good Thank you, Aaron Higgins. Is my mic on? Can you hear me check okay i 'm good. All right, shall we talk about another book, the book of Tobit? Okay, all right, let's do that. So Tobit is another deuterocanonical book. This is one of the seven big A apocryphal books. So this is a book that if a, a Catholic friend hands you their Bible you could open it up and you could find this book in it. Whereas our Protestant Bibles do not have the book of Tobit in it. And it is a wild story. It is a story I think filled with some elements of humor. I imagine the Jewish culture being very, um, like, uh, oral in their tradition. And so people sitting around a campfire telling this story, I imagine the kids and the immature people around will be giggling at certain scenes and maybe the adults would be giggling at other scenes. Um, But it's a pretty interesting story. It happens during the intertestamental period. And so it gives us a window into this time period. And once again, we as Protestants took it out of our Bibles. The Catholics still have it in because there's questions about it. The the Jewish tradition from where we got this Old Testament book, they do not hold it as sacred or scripture. Therefore, I I think that's reason enough to say, hey, there's some questions about this. Let's let's label it as deutero-secondary to canon. Let's not print it with our Bibles as Protestants and so we did take this book out. But it's interesting. And here goes the story of Tobit. So Tobit lives uh, during the time of the Assyrian Empire. If you know a little bit about Old Testament history, you know that the Assyrians came and captured the Jewish people, dragging them out of their houses, bringing them to somewhere like the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. And so the book of Tobit, the first part of it at least, is written in 1st person. And so it's kind of, he kind of brags a little bit. He's like, I, Tobit, walk in the ways of truth and righteousness all my days. I perform many acts of charity. It's like, really? Thanks for letting us know. So anyways, he kind of brags about himself. But then the story goes on to mention uh, something pretty bad that happens to Tobit. Maybe it's happened to you one day on the beach, but you're lying out uh, in the open, taking a little nap, and then a bird comes along and takes a dump in your eye. I think that's the idea of that. I imagine, so retelling the story in the ancient world, I imagine the kids giggling at the part where Tobit gets pooped on by a bird. And so Tobit goes blind. Too bad for Tobit. But the the other part of the story is, is about Tobit's son named Tobias. And Tobias likes, so so that's Tobit. So Tobit's really only a little, a small character in his own book. It's really about Tobias. And Tobias uh, likes a girl. Her name is Sarah. And so Tobias goes to Sarah's uh, father. This is a sketch by Rembrandt. Um, so This is Tobias asking for the hand of Sarah. And so they sit down, they have a meal, and uh, Sarah's father tells Tobias about Sarah's seven previous uh, fiancées who were all killed on the wedding night, kind of like this story, So I Married an Axe. Anybody remember that from the 90s? Okay, so, so all, like for some reason, all seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven previous fiancés were killed on the wedding night by this demon that came out of Sarah. And so Tobias is like, all right, I'll, I'll give it a try. I'll be the eighth. And so the angel Raphael comes to Tobias's aid and Tobias doesn't know it's Raphael, but Tobias is told by the angel, "Here's what you need to do. Go to the River Euphrates and catch a fish and then gut that fish and then take those guts to your wedding night." Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? It's like so I imagine the adults listening to this story around a campfire in the ancient world were probably giggling like, "Really? Like that's what a wedding night looks like?" fish guts and the smells that go along with that? Don't think so. Anyways, uh, Tobias is told by the angel Raphael that if he brings those fish guts to his wedding night, uh, bedroom and leaves them out, then that will scare the demon away. Perfectly good advice to me. That sounds logical. And so that, by the way, if you were looking at your skillet and wondering, what in the world is this picture of an angel killing a demon and something stinking on the far right, and then a man and a woman in a bed, what is going on here? That's the book of Tobit in a nutshell. Um, whatever. So it works. So the stinking fish guts scare away the demon. Raphael gets the demon, kills it, and they live happily ever after. So that's Tobias and Sarah. Meanwhile, Tobit is still blind. So the angel Raphael says, Hey, remember those stinking, rotting fish guts from your wedding night? Go rub those in your dad's eyes. And he does, and Tobit uh, gets his sight restored. And so it's like excuse me, what is this story? Like, what are we talking about in church right now? Well, this is a book that has been left out of the Bible. And jokingly so, like we would say, yeah, no wonder we took this Bible, uh, this book out of the Bible. It's weird. It's funny. Um, it, it is what it is. Um, and so what can we learn here from the book of Tobit? There's a little picture of the bird that got him. <laughs> um, what can we learn here? Well, we can learn about what it was like to live in the intertestamental period. We can learn something about the ancient angel and demonology that was forming during the intertestamental time because when we get to Jesus, a huge par- portion of his ministry is casting out demons. And so it's like, well, if you read the Old Testament, you just don't see that many stories. Uh, well, here's one. Here's, here's one in Tobit during the intertestamental period. It was a common thing uh, at the time of Christ for people to be haunted by demons and f- so, for them to be rebuked by, by someone. Um, and so here's that. We can learn that, a little window of what it was like to live in the old uh, intertestamental period. We can learn something about marriage. And I kind of left out a bunch of details as I'm talking quickly to cover this book in time. But the order of events that uh, we normally do uh, as Americans in our culture, if you were to write, like, here's how to get married. You would say, uh, go date someone. And our American... Secular culture says, oh, there's nothing wrong with having sex before you're married. So you date, you have sex while you're dating, then you probably end up living together for a little while. This is what our culture says. And then you end up uh, sleeping together, of course, while you're living together. And then uh, then you may, might get engaged. And then you have a big wedding ceremony, and the ceremony, and you sign the papers. And most weddings, I, I, I saw a stat, I just looked it up today, and I don't know to believe this or not because it seems really high, but the average wedding costs $27,000. It seems really high to me, but it's like, wow, are you serious? Like the average one. So there's ones that are much more. Uh, The average one in New York City was $65,000 for a wedding. But anyway, so that's what we do in our culture. And then we have a big party, and then there's the wedding night. But compared to the book of Tobit and this intertestamental Jewish tradition, Tobit goes to the, the father they write out a contract, like right there, like here, your your daughter, my daughter's now yours. Um, And then the wedding isn't complete. Like they're really known as wed and married on the wedding night when they have sex. So to them in that culture, that's that's what being married was. That was the covenant. And then after that is the big party and celebration. And so it's just a little insight into how different cultures do it. And I think I think this culture, this, this, this culture of marriage and Tobit, I think it's something right. The, the, the importance of saving sex for marriage, um, if that's all you get out of this book, I think is just an interesting insight. And so, anyways, here we are at the conclusion of this month. Kind of a weird ending about birds pooping and, and fish guts. I apologize for that. But uh, it is what it is. And so, we've talked a lot about the books of capital A and little a apocryphal books but we'll end with just this idea that the books that have been given to us, the canon of Scripture, um, I, I, there's, there's no church that I know of that, that, that takes books out of these 66 and takes them out. There's books that we as Protestants have taken out and say, "Well, yeah, we don't hold the book of Enoch. We don't hold the book of Tobit. But there's no church uh, that I know of, any sect of Christianity, that says, oh, the Gospel of John, that's not canonical. There's the, the First Peter, that's not canonical. There's no, there's no church that... That everybody that is a Christian holds these books as canonical, and there are a few sects of Christianity, like the Orthodox and Catholic and Ethiopian Coptics, that have a few extra books, but there's no one that takes these books out, which just gives us um, peace of mind that, that these books are canonical, they're scripture, and we can trust in them. And so it's with that idea that we'll end this month and end this Sunday. And so let's just pray. Let's clear our minds for a second and and just say, God, we worship you. We hold you as our God, as the truth in our life. And God, we thank you for giving us the books of the Bible, the canon that we do have and put our faith and trust in, that they're your words, that they're God-breathed, that they're um, useful for correcting and teaching and training in righteousness. And so God, give us um, insight into scripture. Give us insight into what is true and what is false. God, may we uh, use Scripture as a guide um, for for you in coming to know who you are. And so, God, we worship you and and praise you this morning. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.